Hello. Welcome to Salem the Podcast. We are your hosts and favorite Salem tour guides. My name is Sarah Black. And I'm Jeffrey Lilly. And today we are coming to you with part one of Arthur Miller and the Crucible. So it's going to be Arthur Miller mostly and then the Crucible. Uh, So that's part one and two. We'll talk about the Crucible today, of right. course, but more in the context of his life yeah. and why he wrote it. And then, of course, the movie that comes out nearly 50 years later. I think Arthur Miller is such a unique person for us to cover because most of the people that we do, they're several centuries in the past where it's kind of hard. It's, it, you know, there's no videos of McIntyre. We can't, right. you know, he hardly left anything. We can't sit down and read a book written by one of the victims of the trials. They, those don't exist. But Arthur Miller, not only is he in our more recent past, but he himself is an author. He has a legacy. Exactly. And a written one. You can go, you can go watch him. You can go watch videos of him. Right. You can hear his voice. You right. can, you know, watch. You can read his work. Yeah. And to be, he only passed away, well, recently within the scope of some of the things we talk about. So I'd say probably everyone, maybe not everyone, everyone, everyone listening to the podcast was alive at the same time he was. That, uh, I hope so. Uh, 2005. I was going to say, we got some right? kids so, listening. So but. if you're like 15, 16 listening to the podcast, uh, sorry you missed out. But uh, anyone older than probably about 16, 17, uh, you were alive at the same time as, as Arthur Miller. But when it comes to uh, historical figures and the Salem Witch Trials, I think this is one of the most asked for. Uh, like the amount of messages and emails. And also, if you've been listening to the podcast for more than like two episodes, there is going to be at some point one of us being like, don't worry, we'll talk about the Crucible later. Right. It just pops up because I yeah. think it's a lot of folks, it's their first interpretation that they come across of the trials. Mm-hmm. Like I read the Crucible when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I think it was sophomore or junior year. And it was really my first taste of the Salem witch trials. And I think we read the book, you know, the the play, we're all assigned our different you know, characters, and then you watch the movie, the one with Winona Ryder and Daniel Day-Lewis. And I'll be honest, of course, we both watched the movie in preparation for these next two episodes, but I don't think I've seen it since then. So, like, it, it's, I, it's I ingrained like... in my head, but, and I know, like, when you hear Salem Witch Trials or Salem, you think the Crucible. And I've had people on tour when I ask them, how much do you know about the trials? And they literally just respond with, well, I saw the Crucible. I mean, that is people's principal understanding. I think that's where it's a, a lot of it comes from is this play. Mm-hmm. Which is a great medium to digest uh, the Salem Witch Trials. It's sort of like, uh, you know, when you watch, you know, like a modern interpretation of Shakespeare or something. You're like, especially at that age in high school, how do you pass on these things to, to, to these historical uh, events? And, and the Crucible is a great way to do that. But When when was your first time seeing the Crucible I don't or know. reading it? I, I don't know. School? Do yeah. you guys do it in school? Like, I, yes, but I don't, I don't expressly like remember it, um, but I'm sure it was in there, you know? So I've mentioned my housemate. Um, yes. Whose name is also Sarah. So two Sarahs. Uh, she is a born and raised Salemite, and I love kind of just bouncing ideas and things off of her just to hear her perspective because it is so unique. They didn't read The Crucible. Not everyone like, does. She, But, like, it, it's so it's such an interesting thing. Imagine being in a Salem high school, 
here in town and reading the crucible. Like, it's just kind of, I don't know. It's weird, right? Did they do like a lesson on the trials? I don't know. Because I feel like living in Salem, I wouldn't, if I was a, a teacher, I might not necessarily have them read the crucible when I could take them to right. the memorial or the museum or or have them take a walking tour. Yeah. Like you could just get your class and bring them downtown. Outside. And, you know, those resources aren't available to people who live in Michigan. And while the crucible is good, when there are better, you could take them to the PEM. You could take yeah. them to, up to Rowley. You know, there's that's fair. A, a significant amount of other, and I don't know if she did that. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if she said yeah. they learned about them at all. Yeah. And they might also expect, you know, they're they're born and raised in Salem. They probably know. Like no. their parents probably right. told them about it. They've seen the memorial. They've walked past all the old buildings. They've heard. They've seen the witch on, they're, you know, the water tower. Their high school team is the. The witches, exactly. <laughs> as, so like how do you teach the crucible? To the witches. To the witches. <laughs> it's an interesting concept, right? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, let's talk about the guy who wrote it. Which definitely was not on my to-do list up until this podcast. Like, I, no offense to Arthur Miller, and I have a lot of respect for him after, you know, researching him, but I really had no desire. I didn't really connect the man with the work. So I think I had, uh, I I feel the same way. I had a more understanding, but I think there were like, there were different pieces of an idea I'd be like, oh, I know who Arthur Miller is. I know what the Crucible is. I know, and we'll talk about like Death of a Salesman and how he was a playwright, and 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 I knew all of these things individually. But now, like a little bit of research later, I was like, it's all part of the same puzzle, the the, the same picture. And I'm like, oh. And it really brings him to life. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Like now, learning more about his life and his trajectory in in theater. In Hollywood, I mean, in, in the world that he grew up in, I think much like McIntyre, which we talked about in our last episode, remember how we said that he grew up at a very dynamic time in history? Like he's in the midst of the Great Age of Sail here in Salem. He's He sees the Revolutionary War take shape and through its fruition. Like he is at such an incredible time in history. And I think Arthur Miller very much is similar in that. Of course, a century later, and of course, it's not the Revolutionary War, it's World War One, World War Two, and, well, I mean, he was born in 15, so he just held up a two for me. Well, he, he, he missed out on the World War One bit. Well, yeah, he wasn't old enough to fight, <laughs> but, but he's growing up in that, in that environment. World War I. He was born in 1915, so he's growing up in that environment, the Depression, the McCarthyism era, which of course we're going to talk about in this episode, and then even into like the 60s, 70s, Vietnam War, he was hugely against the war, but also found himself kind of at odds with the counterculture and then lives all the way up until the early 2000s. I mean, this guy saw a lot. It's an interesting time in, in history. One thing I've always loved, and it's, it's sort of, it's this, and this does not apply to him. I mean, it does, it, I guess it does kind of apply, but it doesn't. So if someone was born uh, 15 years before him, uh, so let's say, you know, early 1900s, and had a, the average human lifespan, right? Uh, they are uh, living and bearing witness to both the first man flight, the landing on the moon, as well as the birth of the internet. 
It's like straight out of a sci-fi novel. You're like, can you imagine you're like 10 years old and you're like 1910, 1912, and then we fly and then you're in your your 50s and we land on the moon and then you're in your 80s and you can send pictures like digitally through email and the internet. Why? It's <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Yeah. I, 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 like, I love that time period in history. And like if, if you, for those people like who fit into that, you're like. Things move so quickly. I can't imagine. And well, Arthur Miller was one of them. Yeah. So we said born 1915. October 17th, 1915, he was born Arthur Asher Miller in Harlem, New York City. So it's upper Manhattan for those who are unfamiliar to Augusta and Isidore Miller. He was the second of three children born into a Jewish family. His mother and father were both from Poland. Um, his father had come over when he was just seven years old. And um, he came over alone, which kind of blew my mind. Like he kind of just was sent over. His Most of his family was already here. And they sent his 10-year-old brother to pick him up from the docks. Different time. Different time. Different time. Different time. <laughs> so his father kind of started out poor, but eventually would work his way up. He owned a manufacturing business that produced women's clothes. Um, it was quite large and extremely successful. This earned the family a ton of money and respect in the community, very much like a, a rags to riches story. And this is the 20s, right? Like, it's a great time. That's a great time to flap our dresses in women's wear. Congratulations. You know, he hit that one. Miller remembers his parents going to shows every weekend. They lived on 110th Street in a six-floor apartment overlooking Central Park. They even had a chauffeur. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, like, they the, were... The high life. They were wealthy. Or you, you, you don't have a chauffeur? No, I don't have a chauffeur. No, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, you don't have a chauffeur? <laughs> Do you have one, Jeffrey? His mother, Augusta, he described her, she could read a novel in an afternoon and remember it for the rest of her life. She was complex and complicated, um, could be very flamboyant at times. And at one time, uh, he recalls her sitting up in bed abruptly and said, my mother died, only to find out that in that moment, you know, somewhere else, her mother had actually died. So there was even talk of her being like somewhat sensitive, clairvoyant. Okay. Coming off of the... Uh, uh, Spiritualist. Yeah. I, I, okay. I can see that. Yeah. And just like a very... It seems like a lively family. But then, of course, tragedy strikes. Across the country. The crash of 1929. So we all know the story of the Great Depression. So what is he? He's 14? 14. 14. Can you imagine being 14? And your family loses everything. Like you got enough problems being a teenager without going from I got a chauffeur to where do I get food? Right. They ended up moving to Brooklyn, and it seems like Brooklyn would always hold a very special place in Miller's heart. He graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School in 1932. And then where'd he go? Well, first he began working in oh, some sorry, 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 manufacturing sorry. warehouses um, to kind of start saving up money right, for right. college. But where did okay, he there. go? Where, where did he go to, to college? Sarah, Sarah, where did he go to college? So this is interesting. I, I both <laughs> love this. No, I, I do 100% love this. You were um, so excited. Because I, I, I was excited. But I'm also, for Michiganders out there, they'll understand why, where the dichotomy comes from. 
He went to University of Michigan. Oh, there we go. Which is so cool to know that Arthur Miller went back to my home state Mm -hmm. to go to school. But I am born and raised a Michigan State girl. So, like, there is kind of a big rivalry there. Okay, okay. I I I think we talked about that before, and I I made the, the, uh, like, BU and BC. Yes, exactly. Yep, 100%. And if anything, like, ours doesn't just exist in Boston. It's all of Michigan. Like, everywhere in Michigan takes a side. Not just Michigan, Ohio. Because Michigan and Ohio State also hate each other very much. Michigan State and Ohio State. No, no, no. University of Michigan and Ohio State hate each other very much. So you know how, like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Right, right, right. So Ohio State much prefers people from Michigan State because they also hate. University of Michigan. Michigan. Okay. Welcome to Midwestern college football. (laughs) (laughs) You did not ask for that. I'm sorry. I didn't want to. I wanted to lesson Arthur Miller today. (laughs) For the rest of you, I'm so sorry. I got got Sarah talking about Michigan. It was inevitable. I mean, he does go to the University of Michigan. He does. uh, And uh, that's where he he gets his start in what is to become his, his future career. Yeah. His lifelong, his, his lifelong endeavor. It seems like that's where he fell in love with writing. So while he was there, he first majored in journalism, but ended up switching to English. He worked two jobs maintain, while maintaining a full load of classes. So he both washed dishes and fed mice at a genetics lab. He definitely had that type of work ethic that I think he got from his family. A jack of all trades, you could say. I mean, if you can wash dishes and feed mice, you're, you're going to become a world-renowned playwright. And write, well, at the same time, he wrote an award-winning play. His first play he ever wrote, he did it on spring break in five days, and it was called No Villain. Explored Marxist theory and centered on an industrial conflict and a father and two sons. So very much a autobiographical take. And this will definitely not be the last time he uses his own life to influence his subjects. Also, just life in in general. I mean, theater reflects life, et cetera, right? All all these sorts of things. But uh, Arthur Miller, one of the the things that he is exceptionally good at, and one of the reasons, and it's weird, because I think The Crucible, while important, stands out as different amongst his other works, right? So... Like that historical narrative, et cetera, isn't his normal go-to. Right. He, he, he is very much in touch with the human endeavor. The human experience. The, the family, the, the, the culture, the ideology of not only the time being the, the mid-1900s, mm-hmm. but just people and, and how people love and live and grieve and loss and, and suffer uh, by the way, he writes tragedies. <laughs> Which, and that's that's how he gets to his audience. Yeah. He's trying to connect with them and make them think about the human condition yeah. and the trials of humanity and the decisions that we make and reflect inward on ourselves. And it's one thing that's really cool about his plays that even though something like The Crucible takes place in 1692, you can transpose it onto so many different the same. times. Yeah, well, that's what he's, uh, well. <laughs> yeah. Jumping like a slight, slight, slightly ahead of ourselves. But yes, back to his very first play, 
no villain. He wrote it specifically to submit to an award. So it's called the Avery Hopwood Award. If anyone's a University of Michigan person, you probably know of this. I saw one description that was kind of like the Pulitzer Prize of U of M. So that's their big thing. And he won. He won it for his play. It was $250. That's a good good chunk of change. Right? It's a very good chunk of change. He saved up 500 to go to school, so he just made half his money back. And then he wins the award again, so he wins all of his money back. It's kind of great. Fun side note, this play was rediscovered by a theater director over in Britain, and it actually premiered for the first time ever at the Old Red Lion Theater in London in December 2015. A month after he died. 2015. Ten years after he died. There we go. Sorry. It's okay. 1915 is when he's born. I was like, oh. How interesting. That's crazy. I mean, they must have known it. Maybe there just wasn't a copy. Well, I think maybe just no one picked it up. Yeah. I mean, it's his first play, you know, that he wrote in in college. For his track record. Today's different, right? Like... You're like, you, you have emails, records, things, and you can look back and go, that first play. But I guess if it's the you know, if it's the 80s, no one's trying to track down his first play that was written in college, right? And produce it. you got to yeah. think, like, is this going to be worthy of production or is this going to be a flop? And we'll actually find out that during the 80s, during the 70s, the 60s, this isn't really the best time for Miller. I think we see, like, a rejuvenation of his work come the 90s when you see The Crucible and whatnot, so... That's also during the time that he wins a lot of lifetime awards and achievements. I guess it's no surprise that we see someone dig through the archives and pull it out, but to do his first play ever. Ten years, I'd say that probably got a, like, you probably had to find it and then get the money and then get producing at the stage. So that probably, I would, I would guess that first sort of discovery comes probably shortly after his, his death. But uh, do, do, do we want to speak about? Um, You're going to go to plays? Yeah, yeah. You, you you said something about uh, good luck, and I just wanted to, oh. to use that as a jumping point. That's a really good way to <laughs> – sorry, not just yet, Jeffrey. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll hold on to that. So it was this Hopwood Award that he got for his first play that really gave him the spark and the motivation to kind of pursue this. Like, oh, there's something here. I might be able to turn this into a career, and I enjoy doing it. Glad he kept that mindset. So Miller graduated in 1938 and was immediately offered a script writing job at 20th Century Fox, which we all know, um, but turned it down to work at the Federal Theater Project, which was part of the New Deal. So remember coming out of the Depression, Roosevelt puts forth his New Deal There's tons of funding for the arts, uh, public works projects, just to get people back to work. Yeah, it's getting people back to work. So we have things like infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, government, uh, arts, theater to to, to spur the economy um, coming out of the the, the Great Depression. It's really what saves America. So the Federal Theater Project was established in 1935, but was dismantled. It's a little bit foreshadowing. In 1939, for communist infiltration. Of course. And also racial integration. Ah. Very nice. We we can't have that at all, can we? Good old 1940s. Yep. 
Shortly after graduating in 38, he married his first wife, Mary Grace Slattery, in 1940. And they would have two children together. So if you're following along timeline-wise, he's born in, in, in the teens, uh, lives, goes through the Depression, uh, graduates in the 30s, and so we're now we're getting into the 1940s. That is, of course, uh, the time frame for World War II. Um, so he, he is alive during World War II. He does not serve in the military. Uh, he had a high school football injury uh, and was uh, disqualified from the draft process. Um, so he does not do that, and he remains uh, within the scope of his chosen profession as a, a, a playwright. So it's in the midst of war that we see some of his first plays come out. So his first produced play, uh, and this is what I was trying to get to too earlier. I, I thought I got a good jumping off point from Sarah. We're there now. We're, We're there. there now. Okay, so uh, you'd mentioned something about good luck, and it, it's called The Man Who Had All the Luck, which is... Uh, both foreshadowing and not not very lucky yeah <laughs> he was so so the play itself is uh i mean it wins a, a a theater award but it closes after four performances with disastrous reviews uh so the man who had all the luck doesn't work out so well but he may be the man with all the luck because uh, he goes on to have an exceptional career winning a plethora of awards uh and, and, and who he crosses paths with and, and as famous as he becomes. So the, the play fails, but he himself succeeds. Well, the interesting thing, too, is the play is centered on this guy who thinks that he's super lucky. But in reality, it's his hard work and his own actions that right. are bringing on all of his success. And which, you know, Arthur Miller is very much a hard worker. So yeah. the parallels are. It's it's interesting, and especially because I. I I don't know, like, would I have wanted the play to succeed? What do you would have wanted to be, like, what's the better foreshadowing, the failure of the play and the success of the man, or the success of the play and then the success? Of, like, when, it's just a slightly different conversation. But. We almost lost him, too, after that. Yeah. He, at that point, he kind of threw his hand up and was considering finding some other line of work if his next play did not take off. Thankfully for all of us and him, it did. So the next play to come was in 1947, All My Sons. That is Tony Award winning for Best Author and Best Direction. So this is where we get to see his deeper understanding of uh, human nature and of people and of family dynamic and of, of loss and betrayal. And so it's a little bit complicated and I, I don't want to give away the whole play. Give me some of it, because <laughs> I know nothing about this one. Okay. So we have some major players in the game, uh, Joe Keller, and he sells to the, the United States military. So in the play, mm -hmm. right, this man is selling uh, uh, products to the United States military, and he sells them bad product. And he knows that it's bad product. Um, but he's under pressure to meet that deadline. And what he had meant to do was then go and be like, oh, sorry, bad shipment. You know, we, we got to fix this thing and like have a follow up. And then in his mind, that's going to extend his deadline, right? Because he wants to meet the deadline. It's the pressure. It's wartime. And you got to think this. However, he doesn't. And those products go into the airplanes. and People die. And people die. Wow. 
Uh, so this is also that's based, messed up. Again, tragedies. This is based on a true story. I did not know that. So, um, what ends up happening is uh, there's obviously an investigation, and a does he know? Does he not know? Did he know the products were faulty to begin with when he sells them? Um, so, is it malicious? Is it criminal? Um, Where do the sons come in? What ends up happening is his wife knows his business partner doesn't know. And so now he's trying to blame his business partner that he's the one who did it. And we get into like the the ideas and concepts of who do you betray? Like where like where ha, ha, you either have to admit fault and your family And betray suck. your name and your family and right. accept or the blame. You try, Right, and it's like so. It's this big, and it's 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 the moral quandary because there is the the, the loss of life, uh, the um, the pilots who died. Twenty one pilots, by the way, if you've heard of the band. Oh, you're kidding. That's that. Yep. You're kidding. Nope. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. That's from. That's based on this yeah, play. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, wow. So the there's twenty one uh, who, who die. Um, his son had also gone down in. Not so in the play, in the play, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my face, right, my right, jaw right. just dropped. Right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So his yeah. son goes down and is missing. His oh my god, I thought you were gonna say the son went down like no, in no, one of wasn't. the planes. No, okay. but that's where the all my sons come from, because the son has gone down and is missing in action, and these other men die, and his son actually ends up being alive. But but they're all someone's sons. Yeah. Each one was someone's son. Yeah. Wow, that's oh so heavy. Yeah. And then there's a line. And you've seen this one? Have you seen this one? Yes. Yeah. Uh, There's a line uh, from it that's basically his son comes back, so he's alive, right? And and he learns what has happened, and that's another dynamic into that. So his son has now learned that he sold the bad product. And he says that that he never, uh, he knew he wasn't like a good man, right? The father says this. Oh, the son's. Right. This is like not everyone's not everyone's a good person. He's yeah. like, I knew you weren't a good person, but I didn't realize you were a bad person. That's heavy. Yeah. So I did read, and I think this was the one that they were referring to. It's either that one or death of a salesman, one of the two, that people were literally weeping. That when the play was over, men, you like saw people in the room with their head in their hands. And like so many felt like, oh my gosh, this is me. I also didn't look too far into the plot of Death of the Salesman. So you can tell me, you can tell <laughs> um, me next if that is the one. So I was leaving out how it ends. Oh, don't tell how, that, how it ends. Okay. But you just confirm if it would make sense that people are weeping. Did someone kill themselves? Oh my goodness. Okay, we'll leave it at that. They're, they're, the, the endings of both of the plays are very similar. God. Um, so both, and we'll talk about Death of a Salesman next, but All My Sons, this was his first big break. And, and it is a tragedy. And, and there's a lot of betrayal and like I did it for my family, but other children died. And, and when the son confronts his father, uh, and it, there, there's, there's a lot. Now I'm going to have to watch it. Yeah. It's it's a lot. It ran for 328 performances over the course of almost two years. And it would be made into movies 
in 1948 and 1987. 87. Mm-hmm. Who's in that? I don't know. I was going to say. We'll go watch it. <laughs> Get a box of tissues. Which one do you prefer? Death of a Salesman or All My Sons? God, I'm going to feel so cliche if I say Death of a Salesman. So Death of a Salesman is arguably one of, if not the best plays ever written, uh, if not distinctly from from the 19, uh, 20th century. Uh, and Arthur Miller is hailed as one of the greatest playwrights of, of all time, And I, if we didn't mention that in the beginning. Um, and I, I feel like a little copping out by saying the best play by the best playwright. Is, his, is it, your favorite? Yeah. It's okay um, if it is. There's a... There's a there's a dynamic within the scope of death of a salesman. Yeah, death of a salesman. Yeah. 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 It's it's uh another one that I'm gonna have to watch. Yeah. I read nothing about this plot. <laughs> do you want to talk about death of a salesman? Yes, okay. but I do want to talk about first though the lead up to it. So, do you know anything about his little studio? That he built and like how it came to him, the the play. No. So, you know, he's got his newfound success. Right, right. right? And he moves his family down to Roxbury, Connecticut. So mm-hmm. he's kind of more out on the countryside. It's slightly more rural than, you know, of course, living in New York. He's about 33 and he built this studio by hand. It was like a shed, like imagine a shed. Okay. But all, the platform, the, the foundation, the walls, the roof, everything. Before he started, or when he started, he had the first two lines of Death of a Salesman in his head. But I don't know if he wanted to like think about it more, hold on to it like he wasn't ready. He told himself that he would not write it until he was done with that studio. That's he's interesting. just thinking about it, thinking about it as he's, man- memor- he loves manual labor. Yeah, he yeah. likes to keep his hands busy, not just writing, but doing things. He builds this shed and he, after it's all done, sits down to write and writes the whole first act within the first day. Well, I mean, like, if, if it's been it's churning just like, in your head. Isn't that crazy? It just yeah, comes out. Yeah. He would finish the entire play in just six weeks. It premiered in 1949 and ran for 742 performances. So, Death of a Salesman. Uh, I think we can all sort of understand is about the death of a salesman. So he is a a door-to-door salesman. It never says what he sells. Um, and his name is Willie, or William uh, Loman, and, uh, which I didn't know until looking this up, is, is that's also like a will he. So Willie, what will ha- will he? Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So he's uh, in his early 60s. He's old, unstable mentally, a little insecure, uh, and these sorts of things. And while he hasn't been a, a failure in life, he hasn't been a, a phenomenal success either. Uh, like mediocre? He's just, he's just a guy, uh, just like so many of us. You're, you're, just, you're just a guy. But so often in life, there are pressures to do better, to be better, to be more successful, to keep climbing the ladder, to keep, you know, doing it. Just and, going. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with just living your life and being a person, but there are a lot of societal pressures that really push you to do more and to work harder. And that's, 
you know, that grind, and this is what we call it today, right? Where you end up working 12, 18 hours a day and missing out on the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his life is, he's now, he's older and he's, he's missed he's out. He's reflecting on it. On, on some of his life. And it is definitely a critique of the American dream. Um, he's he's uh, just come back from a botched business trip. So he's reaching that end point and he's, he's dropped the ball. And throughout Death of a Salesman, we get these uh, time jumps. So these flashbacks of what it was and how he's trying to be better. And it really just seamlessly works itself through the play. Um, and then there's also the narrative of his son. And he, want, you want to provide for your kids. And he's trying to live through the success of his son. And he wants his son to be better and to, which you always want for, for your kids. I mean, I don't, I don't have kids, but that's, you know, yeah, right. And he ends up, oftentimes lying oh he got into this great school he's doing great he's lying about his son yeah to make himself oh the business is great we're successful and and so you get to see that some of the conversations he's having where he's lying and then you get to see like the like what his actual life looks like at home where they're struggling um which is can you imagine like like the weight yeah and the internal struggle which is of course miller's Right. That's what he wants you to feel. He's making me feel something right now. Yes. Through your description. That's crazy. Yeah. And then he, he wants to make sure that, that his son is provided for, and he hasn't been able to do that. Um, but he does have life insurance. No. So that's... that's Are you his, serious? That's his end, end goal. Um, yeah. So this stunned silence dishing out right now this is actually how the first <laughs> reaction of death of a salesman went believe it or not yeah so through 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 the working of the modern family and the lies and the flashbacks and how he's trying to build his success within his mind that's that's the last thing he can do okay i think it was this one that they were okay. talking about so i didn't read anything about the plot but i did read the reactions to it and during one of the first runs after it was over, there was no applause. It kind of was just quiet. And when you looked around, you could see people with their heads in their hands. People were weeping left and right. And then eventually, they're like, oh, crap, this is where you applaud. Like, they were so in that moment and taken aback by it and contemplating what they just saw. Then the applause comes, and it lasted for a very long time. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a tough. They're they're both <laughs> to now, wow. to to tell you know. So now you see how the, the the plot sort of, but it's it's just about the. It's supposed to just be about your average guy, like who we all are. We're we're just. Is there like a good message at the end of it? Like, the, is there any part of it that like makes you feel happy, or is it supposed to be like? They're, they're, is that what tragedies are? <laughs> they're tragedies. For is a that reason. is that how it always is? Like, there's no. I mean, I think the message is, is it's okay. You don't have, like, it's more important to to spend time with your family, to, to be honest. Uh, you know, if we're talking about all my sons, oh, his family is repute, but it drove them to destruction in the end, the, the, the what he tried to hide. And, and here, he's like, yeah, you didn't, you didn't do as good as you could have done, but you tried. And what you did at the end was more hurtful and damaging than, than just trying to, to be there for those who you love. I think is 
probably the message. So anyway. <laughs> so anyway, now the the death at the end of the crucible, which I mean, we obviously all see coming because we know the story of 1692, but... It's also kind of similar. It's quite intense. And you're right, it's similar. We'll all save the plot for <laughs> in a bit here. Yeah. But yeah, John Proctor, like, basically falling on his sword. Is very much in line with the narrative that we see here. So that the, he, he we're, is... We're basically theater analysts. <laughs> right? We should, we should get paid for that. Um, but he does write tragedies. So, so when you watch... Uh, any of his shows, any of his plays. Um, That's so crazy. I expect to come out feeling a lot of feels. Feeling something. Yeah. Now I don't know which one I want to watch. And and again, it is uh, sort of just stepping back at reinforcement of of the time, of the climate, uh, uh, of the people. Uh, but we can still watch these things today, um, not quite a century, three quarters of a century later, and it, it speaks the, the same language. It still applies. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the expertise of, of who Arthur Miller is. Is it's, while yes, he's using the nature of, of the time he's living in, he's talking about the, the human endeavor and, and how that, that, that touches all of us. And he does it on purpose. <laughs> like, he does it. No, I mean that in like a respect to his art. Yeah. Because I don't yeah. think, I think a lot of people just think, oh, it's a story. Like you just throw together a story with some dialogue. It's a lot harder than that. And he does a damn good job of it. That he does. Death of a Salesman will win what they like to call the triple crown for drama, the Pulitzer Prize, Tony Award for Best Play, and. New York Drama Critics Circle Award. Congratulations. It also wins three additional Tony Awards for Best Revival, which I think is a little weird. Why is that weird? Well, like... It's like giving awards to remakes. Right, but it's... it's so it's done cool. Someone brings it back. Three or so. No, but 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 the revi- best revival. So like you got to stack it up against other revivals. Revivals, I guess. I guess. So it's like, oh, you bring it out in 19, and I can't remember the dates, you know, the mid 80s. Oh, best revival. And then 10 years later, it wins again for best revival. Okay, and now I win- see what you're saying. And it wins again for best revival. Someone's like, ooh, I want a Tony Award. Let's right? do this one. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. I see. Which I don't think is fair because you're like, oh, it's arguably considered to be one of the greatest plays of the 20th century. And you're like, I'm going to bring it back and win again. But perhaps someone could do a poor job with it. Okay, okay. Yeah. You never know. Right, right. But I see what you mean. Yes. Speaking of those revivals, it has been revived on Broadway five times. Oh, okay. And adopted for cinema ten times. Again. I have never seen any of these. I feel like I'm kind of missing out yeah. on an American classic. A New Yorker drama critic, John Lahr, described it as, quote, probably the most successful modern play ever published. I mean, as we are now, clearly, uh, theater critics, I, I would tend to agree. <laughs> here, here. Yes, yes, of course. Now, here's where we're going to talk about The Crucible a little bit, and um, more specifically, what inspired Miller to write it, and his first interactions with Salem. But before we do, we got to kind of lay out some historical context, because I think that is, it is super significant to why Miller wrote this play in particular, and when he wrote it. 
So it's produced in 1953. And as we said, we're going to talk about McCarthyism. I feel like before we talk about McCarthyism, because not everyone's 100% familiar, we got to go a little bit further back. I think you could tell us a little bit about the first and second Red Scares. So the Red Scare, quote unquote, uh, is a politicized fear of communism. Uh, so coming off of the Great World Wars, um, our uh, system of government is very different than some of our enemies and some of our allies. Um, and that's where we, we get in, in World War II especially. Um, so we'd already had a little bit of a dose of a fear of communism uh, within the scope of the first Red Square uh, after World War One. And just to expand on that real quick, remember back to the Romanovs and, yes. and the whole Ru- and the, the, Russian the, revolution. So the Bolshevik re- revolution. Uh, the dismantling of the monarchy yes. that by the people was extremely like earth shattering around the world. Like everyone was like hyper aware of what happened and it was a huge change. Especially because uh, coming through the 1800s, 1718 into the 1900s, uh, monarchies had been, a lot of their power had been taken away. Um, but other than like, I mean, the, the, the French monarchy was destroyed and the English monarchy-ish in the 1700s. But now we're in the 1900s. So now things are a little more civil. I was going to say civilized. I, I, I think <laughs> civilized was the word I was looking for. Um, or at but, least one would think. And then you get World War One, Two, and the atomic bomb. So can we really say that? No, right? Uh, so the, the people rise up. And the idea... Uh, that communism is bad, that it is these communists who have torn down the government, these, these communists who have destroyed, who have turned Murdered their back. Murdered the royal family. Right, gunned down women and children. And then that sort of implanted in, 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 into our minds, our being cultural America. And of course we get World War II, and we have the uh, fascist regime of, of the Nazi party, and the communist regime of Russia. And for a while, they're allies. And World War II 101, they end up not being allies, uh, and, and Russia takes the eastern front of, of Germany and, and, and turns on, on Germany. And really, because of, of, of that, uh, we are able to win World War II. And so for a while, the, the U.S. and Russia are allies in the scope of destroying um, the, the fascist regime of, of the Nazi party. But once the war is over... Our ideologies, our being the Western world right. and, 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 and Russia, are diametrically opposed, which is both true and untrue, but that's neither here nor there. Um, that starts the, the Cold War, effectively, and which is just a lot of fear-mongering, a whole heck of a lot of fear-mongering. So, so the Cold War, at the end of the day, is who's got the bigger guns and who's going to use them first. And it's this big stalemate of war buildup, of arms buildup, uh, of tactical buildup, of who's who's going to flinch. You're playing a game of chicken is, is what that is. A lot of it comes down to you're playing a game of chicken for, you know, and again, we get into this fear-mongering, for democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, within the scope of the American culture, society, and political scope, there is a, are you a communist, are you this red? idea that there are, spies there are spies amongst us. So it's twofold. Is Yes, there are spies amongst us. Yes, there are Russian intelligence agents who you've seen, who've seen TV shows. They infiltrate just commonplace America. They, the Russians trained 
people like from birth to like live among the American people spies sending back information not only about like what we were doing with our nuclear programs but just what the average American was doing and it's 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 a little weird because there was some legitimacy behind it there a hundred percent was you know there were politicians who were bought out by the Russians there were you know uh, uh, people with high security clearances who were bought out by the Russians. There were people who had been Russian operatives like for like 20 years, and now all of a sudden they're feeding information back to the Russians. Um, and while those did exist, they were uh, small in number. And while the threat was legitimate, the fear-mongering was worse. And the courts and the legal system, the judicial system, took it too far. And I can't as you describe these things, I can't stop thinking back to Salem, where like the fear, even though we all know the devil isn't real and witches aren't real, that's not what they thought. To them, it was real. They believed in the devil. They believed in witchcraft, but they took it too far. They so allowed their judicial system to I, get out of hand. I would argue our courts did put a stop to it. However, sometimes that was too late. What do you mean? By the time you went to court and got your name cleared. But but the fact that they had to do that in the first place. Right. You'd already right. been marked. You'd already been branded. You were already It still read. ruined. You, you, it ruined reputations. Right. It ruined fortunes. Yeah. It ruined families. It so, ruined so, careers. So you get you're the finger pointed at you and you've been labeled as red. You've been labeled as a, as, as a communist sympathizer um, for, for next to nothing. And also at the same time, we have the distinct argument of free speech in this country and you should be able to say unequivocally i'm a communist and if the government then comes in and tries to silence you well that is unconstitutional horribly against the constitution um but that's not not the conversation they're having because they are distinctly trying to depress uh, depress oppress oppress uh free speech uh freedom of thought freedom of belief suppress suppress there we go (laughs) i it's like we english professionally so what we have after uh, the end of World War II is what we call the Communist Red Scare. And that's where this is coming from. It is this fear of communism, uh, which has been woven into our political and social cultural for now decades and now is really reaching uh, this heightened point. And it really comes to fruition with uh, McCarthyism and with Senator Joseph McCarthy. Um, who arguably is just a fear-mongering piece of shit, uh, <laughs> to put it out there. Uh-huh. Um, he uh, basically stands up one day at, at an event and is like, whips out a piece of paper and he's like, I got a list. There's names on the list. And it's like, communists. Communists. A list of like 205 communists in the government, which is very much like what Tichiba did. Not that it's her fault because she was beaten as an enslaved person. But nonetheless, she was like, there was a list of nine people and the Puritans end up going after. And we got to go get them. A couple hundred. McCarthy stands up with that list uh, and they go after thousands. thousands. Uh, He falls from grace, to be fair, within the scope of this fairly quickly as uh, the courts do have evidence that pretty much he's making this up, that he doesn't have a list, that anyone, who, most people who he ends up accusing is shown to be innocent. But it's interesting, right? He stands up with this list. He's like, oh, I've got these names. But it's the environment in which he's in that allows it to go forward. Yes. 
It is yes. this fear that is already sewed into their minds yes. that pushes them in that direction. Yeah. Much like Puritan New England. Yeah. Like, we're not going to let the communists take over. And you're like, mm, I'm not sure most of you know what that means. Uh, <laughs> but we can, we can get into that conversation later on what exactly uh, sensitive topics even sometimes today. It's like, oh, well, you're Marxist. And you're like, I dare anyone. He's like, well, those Marx, ask them what Marxist theories are. You know, ask them what communist theories Usually are. Usually they can't, yeah. 95% yeah, yeah, yeah. of the time they can't answer I remember, Jeff, we can't, we can't be too political on here. <laughs> sorry. Careful. Sorry. Um, if anyone's no, drawing. No, don't say sorry. Politics are part of history. It kind of just yeah. happens. But if anyone is drawing uh, allegories and uh, uh, correlations to modern political climates, so one of the uh, big targets of McCarthyism, of the Communist Red Square, is Hollywood. We're talking film directors, writers, actors, which is interesting. At first, it starts with like the federal government, employees within the government. And I think a lot of people might be like, why would you point the finger at an author? Why would you point the finger at an actor or an actress? Like, wow. why? Back then, they held a lot more power. Yes. So like Hollywood itself was bigger than I think in, in comparison, like, so like relative to the times, Hollywood now versus Hollywood then, like Hollywood is big, but performers and directors and theater folk, they had even more, I think relatively even more power and prestige. They had a way to communicate to a larger audience. Like now you can go on the internet, you can post a video of yourself, hope you go viral and maybe touch like millions of people in the process. But back then that wasn't an option. So it is a major concern that people in the film industry that have that platform, oh no, they can't be un-American. They can't be communist. So I, I'm, I'm going to get little, uh, here we go. There is still a critique among uh, some people today of Hollywood and of actors and how Oh yeah, you're right. and how they control a narrative and how they shouldn't be involved in politics and why is this person talking about this thing? Want to take a guess on where that comes from? <clears throat> I did not think about that, but it's so true. Yeah. That's why there is still today a critique. Oh, why is Hollywood? Who cares what this actor says? Da, 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 because a lot of these people were targeted uh, as communists 70, 80 years ago, however long ago it was. Humans don't change very much. Anyway, continue. So basically what would happen is you are brought in for questioning. You would get a, a, a citation or a subpoena and you're brought in to be questioned by the committee, the House Committee on Un-American Activities. The HUAC, as it was commonly called. Uh, and they were a lot of the ones doing a lot of the investigating on un-American activities. Now, a little bit of a catch-22 and critique of this here for, from me. First and foremost, McCarthy was not on the H-U-A-C. Nope. So the man who's standing up with the big list, who this entire idea today, as we talk about history today, McCarthyism in the McCarthy era, does not even serve on the House on American Activities Committee. Now, I don't, th I don't think it's the worst. Um, right, because there are actual spies. Right. There are people who are looking to subvert the government. They, they are looking for people 
who were out there who had fascist ideals, who did not want to support the Constitution, who wanted to overthrow the government, who wanted to, to, to kill uh, elected members of office. That's who they're looking for. Did they go radically too far? Yes. Yes. But the idea that there are people out there who are looking to do these things is a distinct threat to all of us in this country. And so the, the idea of un, calling it un-American activities, I'm not sure is the best thing, but what they're effectively looking for are domestic terrorists who want to subvert, overthrow the government, destroy the Constitution, uh, kill elected officials. Well, that's part of, that's part of the narrative, right? Yes. Calling it un-American automatically makes you take sides because yes. if it's saying that, that any type of liberal, and I'm going to use that term because that's what Arthur Miller called himself. Yes. Liberalism. Like people were terrified. It got to a point where they were afraid to come out as a liberal because that could then be pushed toward communism mm -hmm. and would earn you jail time, fines. Uh, you could lose your career in the process. Which, of course, is, you know, a fascinating uh, thing to come off of World War II as we have just beaten the shit out of the Nazis, rightfully so, who are incredibly right-wing, and many of the things that we can, anyway. That, <laughs> we know but then, but then you, you establish that dichotomy. Yeah. Un-American, you associate it with liberalism. Yeah. They come down in, in the scope of both the public and the private sector. Uh, they restrict books. They ban books. They burn books. During the McCarthy era. Yeah. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, they come into libraries and books about free thinking, books about ideals and ideology. And, the you know, irony. And, the you irony. know, things obviously was illegal to be gay. Uh, we still had uh, segregated schools. Uh, things along these lines were considered perhaps. Un-American. Un-American. So literature and narratives on these things were taken off of library shelves. There are some places that burned these books even. And I think, as we all know, if you're on the side of burning books, you're on the wrong side. Just going to throw that I think that's there. safe to say. I think, I think you're okay to say that. <laughs> but this is where Arthur Miller is getting his inspiration from. Yeah. He had learned about Salem in college, and he had thought about it for a, a long time. And he saw the parallels happening around him, and it, it hit very close to home in yes. April of 1952 when one of his close friends, very close friend, um, they're very much like brothers, Elia Kazan. Interject real quick. Uh, Mr. Kazan here actually directs All My Sons uh, for that, that first Broadway performance. Yeah, they were very closely yes. linked. Miller considered him a very good friend. He was told that Elia was going to be testifying. He was mm -hmm. called in. Miller had already decided to go to Salem. And on his way up north from Connecticut, he stopped and chatted with his friend. And during that conversation, uh, Kazan said that he was going to give up names. His career had been threatened. They said they're going to blacklist him, which I'm sure a lot of us have heard this term before. If you're on the Hollywood blacklist, you're not getting a job. Like, your career's done, you're associated with the Communist Party, done. That's it. He told Miller that he was going to give up these names. And it's after this testimony that him and Kazan don't speak for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. They will mend things later down the line, and he will end up directing plays for Miller. But this hit really hard 
and hit really close to Arthur. The, the naming of names is a big deal. And, and this ties directly to what happens in Salem. And this is sort of one of the reasons that he writes The Crucible um, is because he directly sees the, the, the correlation here. So obviously within the scope of our constitutional democracy, we have the Fifth Amendment, where in which uh, that is that right against self-incrimination. So if you are dragged in front of the HUAC for un-American activities, you can't self-incriminate yourself. But what you can do and what they're looking for is for you to name names. They're dragging you in there to say, well... Who else? Who else? And so you say, well, it was these five people. And they were at a meeting. They are involved in this activity. They signed this petition. It could be as simple as that. And so... Well, you can't incriminate yourself. If you can go up and you can give up other people, then they get to go after those people, which within the scope of Salem is not word for word, but... Pretty much what happened. Pretty much what happened. Um, so Arthur Miller sees this correlation. So he continues up to Salem. One thing I liked about reading and studying Arthur Miller was the fact that it is so recent. We talked about this earlier in the episode. There are writings of his about this period in his life and like going to Salem we know what was going through his head what his experience was because it was only 70 years ago so these things do exist also interviews if you have a chance go check out an interview with him in particular there's a piece that he published in the New Yorker called why I wrote the crucible he said quote I visited Salem for the first time on a dismal spring day in 1952. It was a sidetracked town then, with abandoned factories and vacant stores. In the gloomy courthouse there, I read the transcripts of the witchcraft trials of 1692. He also said, I had never been to Salem before, and driving alone up the brand new superhighway, I felt a shock at seeing the perfectly ordinary steel sign reading, Salem three miles, which is funny because I think we all know that sign as you're coming up the highway, right? The one that you're not supposed to get off at because you're going to end up on Lowell Street and get super backed up. Hit the next one, guys. Yeah. (laughs) I confess it. Some part of my mind had expected to see the old wooden village, not the railroad tracks, the factories, the trucks. These things were not real suddenly, but intruders, as tourists are in the halls of Versailles. Underneath in the earth was the reality. I drove into town. I love listening to him or reading him. I asked the courthouse clerk for the town records for 1692. A lawyer-looking man in an overcoat asked for 1941. A lady who looked like she were planning to sue somebody asked for 1913. The clerk handed over a volume to each of us, and we sat at separate tables, the three of us turning pages. The lawyer began copying, possibly from a deed. The woman read perhaps a will and got angrier. I looked into 1692. Here were wills, too, and deeds, and warrants sworn out, and the usual debris a town leaves behind it for the legal record. And then, dialogue. Prosecutor Hathorne is examining Rebecca Nurse. The court is full of people weeping, 
or the young girls who sit before them strangling because Rebecca's spirit is out tormenting them. And Hathorn says, It is awful to see your eye dry when so many are wet. And Rebecca replies, You do not know my heart. I never afflicted no child. Never in my life. I am clear as the child unborn. Which I think we've read that line directly. It's weird to think that us and Arthur Miller read some of the same stuff. The lawyer in the overcoat was copying his deed. The lady was back at the counter asking the clerk for 1912. Did they know what happened here? So this, this is recollection from Arthur's travel to Salem. And I, I love it. I love like being in his head and like in learning about it's his experience. Thinking, nothing the exact same thing that we think, but similar. Like as they're wandering around the town, do they know what happened here? He's, we've had the same. Right. And I think usually when we talk about it, we're like, obviously everyone knows the witch trials happen, but like, do you know all the other cool stuff that's happened in Salem? Like, do you know this? Have you seen this? Where we stand today? What ties that has through history? And there he is sitting in a early fifties Salem in the courthouse, looking at these documents. We're not, I mean, we're not, I was going to say, we're not the witch city yet, which we really weren't. I mean, They had the spoons. I was going to say, Daniel Lowe made his spoons. They had some pamphlets here and there, had the House of Seven Gables. What year? 52, which is when he went to Salem. Yeah, the Witch Museum. Wouldn't open for like 20 years. Bewitched doesn't air until the 1970s. The Salem episodes don't air until the 1970s. And here he is like, why aren't people talking about this more? Like, do people know what happened? So he, he learns about Salem and he can... I think very easily see, and it's all, and again, it, it's the times he lived in. You know, his uh, uh, peers are being dragged in from the House on America Committee. There's uh, false accusations. There's the, the, the these red herrings, these flag wavings. There's McCarthy standing up there with his with his damn list. Uh, there's arrests. There, there, there's fear mongering. And here he goes to Salem and reads these documents that are just two hundred and fifty years old at that point, and is reading almost verbatim probably what he's seeing in the newspapers and his creative mind inspiration genius uh draws those parallels together very well so one thing i find interesting about the crucible and we'll talk more in depth in the next episode about the discrepancies between the history and the play Mm -hmm. and what liberties he takes in telling this story But he focuses very much on this affair between Abigail Williams and John Proctor, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if there is any historical evidence for, which is interesting because he, Arthur Miller, saw a specific entry regarding Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Proctor. So let me, let me, I'm going to read this to you and see what you think of this, because I thought he like took this and ran with it personally. So it came from a report written by Reverend Samuel Paris. I tried to find the notation. During the examination of Elizabeth Proctor, Abigail Williams, and Ann Putnam, both made offer to strike at said Proctor. But when Abigail's hand came near, it opened, whereas it was made up into a fist before, and came down exceedingly lightly as it drew near to said Proctor, and at length, with open and extended fingers, 
touched Proctor's hood very lightly. Immediately, Abigail cried out, her fingers, her fingers, her fingers burned. This is what Arthur Miller claims that he read. Then Arthur says, In this remarkably observed gesture of a troubled young girl, I believed a play became possible. By this time, I was sure John Proctor had bedded Abigail. And I'm like, whoa, Arthur. Pump the brakes here. So basically in that in that transcription, what's happening is Elizabeth Proctor is being questioned. And if I'm reading this right, Abigail Williams is given the chance to strike her for whatever reason. And instead of hitting her, she opens up her hand, lightly touches Elizabeth, but then can't because her hand feels like it's on fire. Isn't that bizarre? And I know there's probably more, I know that there's more documents and statements that played into his understanding of the trials and probably why he decided to take this route with it and make them the principal storyline and what it's all formed around with. But like, it's just. Yeah, that none of that. Right? So none of that makes sense to us. It clearly made sense to him. Uh-huh. And he's not, and we, we, we can see uh, from his writings, from his works, he, he's not a, a, a fly-off-the-handle kind of guy. He's no. not a, a, a make-shit-up kind of guy. Because um, then I went back to the trial documents and searched out Elizabeth Proctor and tried to read through all of the documents associated with her and could not find this. So just something to note. <sighs> It's so, it's weird, I'm trying right? to figure out why. It's so bizarre. It's, it's very bizarre. I read it and I was like, what? Because I wanted to know how much historical basis, yeah, yeah. you know, the, his storyline has. But so there's a reason he filled that in and that's the only. And like, I wonder if that was his way of making sense of the trials too. Also, you got to think of his perspective too at that moment. His own marriage is kind of like. What He will say it. He will literally say, my own marriage of 12 years was teetering. And I knew more than I wished to know about where the blame lay. And he's talking directly about John Proctor's character. So, like, he knew. He knew a little bit about infidelity, infidelity, which we are going to talk about next. But I, I wonder how much if that, if that was, like, not plaguing his mind, but if it was clouding his mind. If that was the lens that he was looking through, this this lens of some infidelity, maybe that's why he saw it. I don't know. It's weird. We'll have to track down this specific. We'll ask. We'll oh, ask yes. our yeah, yeah. special guest about oh, yeah. it. Yeah, we're bringing on a spoiler alert. We're bringing on a special guest for the part two. Not going to tell you who though. So he traveled to Salem in April of fifty two, and the play would first appear on Broadway January 22nd, 1953. So less than a year later. Yeah. Can, the turnover is stunning. I mean, he wrote the other one in, in a matter of days. Right. But then so. also you got to think about the production of the play too. Yeah. I was, I was stunned. So not long after that, he gets brought in front of the HUAC. But do, do we want to talk about what happens a little bit before that? between the two kind of like in yeah in the midst of in, it in, so he writes the crucible boom that's done uh he gets brought in from the committee about a year later nope two two years 
three years. It's okay. Well, 19, I can't count. 1956. 56. 56, let's just say, was a very big year yeah. for Arthur Miller. So there's there's a thing. I don't know. There's we've So <laughs> <laughs> we both were mind blown by so, this. Fun fact, uh obscure fact. A uh, little bit of trivia. Had no idea. None. Neither of us. Neither. And I, okay, so we've both been in the industry here in Salem for for several years. Between us, uh, we know not every tour guide in the city, but we all talk, we all chat. You know, been on uh, had the privilege of being on some other tours of uh, some other tour guides in the city. Somehow, this has never come up. We get beers. We're we're, we're friends. We socialize. We talk, and somehow. Neither one of us. And I'm not saying no one else knows this. No, because I know a lot of people out there do. There's a lot of people, right. And they're going to look at us like idiots. Right. But neither one of us knew this. And uh, so we did research on this, and, and we get together, and I think I turned to you, and I was like, oh, my God. And I didn't have to say anything. Anything. Anything else. You, t- you go, I know. I know. I know. And we had the whole cover. We didn't say it. We're like, how did you? I did. Did you know? I didn't know. Why well, did? How didn't I know? Arthur Miller divorces his first wife. And who does he marry? Who is his second wife, Sarah? Marilyn freaking Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. When I first read it, I assumed. You didn't believe it. That it was a different, like, not that it's a common, right? Someone else named Marilyn Monroe. Like, it's got to be... But no, it's the Marilyn Monroe. And so people that love her, like big fans... They know. They knew this. But we had no idea. I had no idea. How did How did I not... Like, so there we go. Arthur Miller, greatest playwright of the 20th century. Uh, writer of All My Sons, Death of a Salesman, The Crucible. Also married to Marilyn Monroe. The American Goddess. How did I not know that? It's okay. The more you know. Which is what, half why we do what, what we're doing now. And you, you, it's you learn so much. Because it's fun to learn yeah. about these things. And his affair with Marilyn definitely, so this is the infidelity we were talking about, definitely played into his interpretation of John Proctor and the story of the Crucible overall. Like, there's no doubting that. They had met in 1950 through a mutual friend. Arthur Miller was over in California for a bit, and he was asked to accompany her to some type of event of some sort, and he did not give her the attention that she normally receives from men. She described it, it was like running into a tree, you know, like a cool drink when you've had a fever. So she was intrigued by this. Now, they wouldn't meet up again until the mid-1950s, but they would maintain a pen pal relationship for several years between 1950 and 1955. It was at that point that Marilyn moved to New York City, recently single from her second husband, Joe DiMaggio, and she was still very interested in Arthur Miller. They even say that she kept a, a picture of him above her bed. Like before she even moved to New York City, like that one meeting and their pen pal relationship had already generated those feelings. She well, even well, keep, what, keeping a picture. Of, do you keep a picture of anyone above your bed? No, I do not do that. <laughs> keep a broom above my bed. I have 
tapestries of skeletons. That's cool. So, <laughs> what's above your bed? <laughs> that, that speaks very much to our natures. I think so too. <laughs> Marilyn even befriended some of his friends in New York just to get closer to him. Damn girl. I know she wanted him. She had her eyes. Set. Well, I mean, think about it. So he's he's a successful playwright. He's at his peak, his prime during this time. They began an affair, but at this point she had already gained some stardom. So when they first met, she was an aspiring actress. She did not have, she did not command the prestige or the reputation that we know Marilyn Monroe as. But by 1955, she had. So paparazzi, people are following her. It was difficult for them to maintain a discreet affair. So what does he do? He moves to Nevada to establish residency so he can divorce his wife. Yeah, I don't think it was legal in New York City at that point. So this is where our two storylines kind of intertwine. Marilyn and the House Committee of Un-American Activities. When he's in Nevada, he applies to renew his passport because he wants to accompany Marilyn to... um, England because she was going to be going over there to work on a movie or something and he gets a rejection but not just that he gets called in to testify before the committee himself so he's on a list of 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 many people who has gotten sort of this this blacklist quote-unquote if if I recall correctly skimming through uh, several articles a couple other people of note who also serve this passport issue um one of which is uh, this this guy uh, Einstein. What I did not know that you might have heard of uh, before travel issues, and as well as uh, Robert Oppenheimer. Um, now that one I don't know. So he is a uh, physicist, and he was uh, basically the head of the Manhattan Project, constructing uh, uh, atomic bomb. So they went after him. Well, they had ties. The the so. Um, so that this list is, is extensive. Yeah, it didn't take much. Yeah. Like Arthur Miller, basically they asked him about signing some petitions. Mm-hmm. He's questioned on June 21st, 1956. And a lot of what they ask him is stuff about when he was back in the 1940s, when he's in college. And he did join uh, an artist collective while he was in school. It did have members in it that were tied to the Communist Party. But like we said, just because you have communist beliefs or you are a liberal, which he described himself as, doesn't mean you are out to get the country, right? And they were not on the side of banning books. Just going to throw that one out there as, as well. The ones who were targeting people were banning the books. That, that makes you the bad guy. Just, just so everyone's clear. clear. Right. So, do you want to talk about his quick uh, uh, discussion from the committee? Sure. So he gets brought in, uh, just like sort of many other people, and um, he gets questioned, and um, he'd agreed to testify because the, uh, was it the head of the committee or someone on the, the chairman? So sorry, yes. So, so the chairman uh, said he wasn't going to ask him to name names. And he agrees to testify. He gets there, and the chairman does ask him names and is sort of forcing him to ask these names. And he is refusing. Yes. Uh, Miller refuses. Uh, he gets found guilty in contempt of Congress, sentenced to fine, prison, blacklisted. However, I believe much of that is uh, overturned. 
Yep. Um, so this is when we get into the court system. So as we, we talked about earlier, that the court systems are actually supporting these peoples. So Congress goes after them. They nail them. They lie to them. They, they hoodwink them. Uh, they drag them from the committee. But once these cases are then brought in front of a judge. They usually don't hold up. They're like, well, excuse me, head of committee. You promised him one thing, brought him in, tricked him and lied to him. That is illegal. And we're going to overturn the case. So that $500 fine, gone, the year in jail, didn't happen. And I couldn't help but think, like, imagine being Miller. Like, imagine writing The Crucible, watching it go to production, and then being called in to testify before the very committee that you were probably thinking about the entire time you were writing this. Right, since his friend had been dragged in front of it before and he knew... You know, he's involved. He knew tons of people that he's were married doing. to Marilyn Monroe. He knows the Hollywood scene. He knows who's getting blacklisted. All of a sudden, here he is dragged in front of the committee. She goes with him. Yep. Did we say that? No, we did not. She goes with him, by the way. She's to in, show support. To show support. She is in fully uh, supportive of her husband and is with him while he's testifying in front of Congress. And actually, there was a moment where the chairman kind of said, well, you know, how about I get a picture with Marilyn and we can make this thing go away? Like, that just goes to show how illegitimate it is. Let's get a picture and we can make it all go away. Basically. And I'm sure Arthur was like, are you freaking kidding me? No. Yeah. Yeah, How about we just get a picture of your wife and we can make this all go away? But it's about the principal. Mm -hmm. They both declined. I can't remember if this line comes from his autobiography or a documentary, which, heads up, there is a documentary that was produced by his daughter. When talking about the testimony, he said they were replaying the crucible. So here I am wondering, like, dude, you got to be thinking about this, right? Yeah, he he knew. Exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. It must have felt so surreal, so surreal to be actually in it. Can you imagine? You're probably just sitting there and be like, anyone seen my play? You guys want to go? Oh, my God. Maybe we can Please. just clear all this up if you just want to go see the play. Well, that's what made the, the play kind of controversial yeah, yeah. a little bit during its um, first couple runs. But that's the point. Right. That's, if you don't feel... Challenging yeah. people yeah. and challenging society. And we're going to get into the play, obviously, next week. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep the analysis yeah, more for yeah. part two. We understand we're, we're, fo- we're focusing more on Miller than... But it, it, we keep wanting to talk about the crew because it's... Right. Like, okay. And then we don't get to talk about it ever again. Just kidding. No, it it (laughs) automatically comes up in our discussions. Like we said, it's like the cornerstone interpretation that most people know. So he gets out of the situation relatively unscathed. Obviously, he was all over the headlines for this. And honestly, I'm surprised that they went after him, given how high profile he was. They're going after the Hollywood 10, like the list, like high, very high profile people. I mean, they're going after. It's Marilyn Monroe's husband. Well, Mm. not yet. Not yet. Technically, not yet. They get married. Communists. They get married like seven days later. Yeah. But yeah. So we're gonna continue on with with his life and and whatnot. And we'll wrap that um, up. Five years together. Five years. Unfortunately, that relationship falls apart. There's a book that I really want to get my hands on next. It's called The Genius and the Goddess, and it's all about their story. I'm so perplexed by this match, this pair, and. Even though it is only five years of his life, it is a tumultuous and intense five years. They were hot and heavy at the beginning. Marilyn said 
this is the first time I've been really in love. She kind of, I think she looked at Arthur as a safe place. Marilyn didn't really have much of a family of her own. And I think she found one in Arthur. She even converted to Judaism while she was married to him to kind of show support for him and his family. But as you said, it fell apart. She experienced several miscarriages. Her substance abuse was getting worse and worse. Her addiction to pills and alcohol just kind of got out of control. And you'll notice that Arthur Miller doesn't really publish anything during this time. He doesn't write a lot because it was so distracting. And I hate to use that word because it sounds so, it sounds like I'm blaming her, but you can't deny there are many of us out there that have seen addiction and like what that can do to a relationship and a family. So unfortunately, that's going to kind of take over and it will leave a lasting mark on him. They announced their divorce in, in, in uh, November, and she actually travels out of the country to, to get the divorce in uh, January of 61. Um, and unfortunately, uh, she passes away just about a year later, a year and a half. August 5th, 1962. A reporter called Arthur. Of course, he's getting bombarded with press after this. They called him to ask if he would go to her funeral. And he said, without even thinking, he just automatically responded and just said, she won't be there. Which at first I read that and I was like, yikes. But then I heard it in the interview and he gave more context. And it was like, oh, even though their marriage didn't work out, he was somewhat shattered Mm -hmm. by this. And you can't help but wonder what would have happened to her if they stayed together. I'm not saying anyone should ever stay in a bad relationship, a bad marriage, but would she be around still? He'll explore all of this pain, you know, from the years of the marriage, divorce, her death in a play called After the Fall, which appeared in 1964. And again, we see as much as the subject matter is grim, like most of his plays, Alia Kazan will direct the play so their relationship they have reform re reconnected yep uh, which was which was nice to see that i mean that's not the end of his career by 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 any stretch no but but he has done uh probably the the majority of his his famous work that's his peak yeah so pinnacle uh, all my sons um death of a salesman thank you (laughs) and the crucible uh, are sort of his his three most uh well-known He'll go on to marry his third wife in 1962. So her name was Inga Morath, Mm -hmm. and she was a photographer from Austria. And kind of unlike his previous two wives, he was perplexed by her. I mean, she had forged her own life up until that point, and she'll travel the world as a photographer. So she's very well-traveled, brilliant. I think he found his equal in Inga at least probably artistically and, and, and creatively. Absolutely. They're married for decades. Until her death. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So she'll die of cancer in 2002, but from 62 to 2002, 40 years? Yeah. 40 years. So Two children, um, one of which, Rebecca, and the other, Daniel. So Daniel, this is a controversial part of their story, mm. 
was born with Down syndrome. And uh, Arthur had him uh, institutionalized. So that's where, see, that's the thing where Wikipedia leads you astray. Because, like, I, you read that, right? And you think, God damn him, Arthur Miller. Well, but then when I was watching the documentary that his daughter made, so in the documentary, she includes a diary entry from him that said, as the nurse was dressing Daniel in the hospital, preparing him for our journey to the institution, I turned to examine him with some difficulty. In a few seconds, I found myself not doubting the doctor's conclusions, but feeling a welling up of love for him. I dared not touch him, lest I end by taking him home, and I wept. So I think he was genuinely torn up about this, but unfortunately, given that era, they were told by yeah. the doctors to the not... the best thing for them... Is to grow up in a different environment. Yeah. In an institution. Yeah. The doctors told them not to bring him home, to not raise him in a normal household, which is so sad and just speaks to the situation of mental health and disabilities during this time. Yeah. So I don't want anyone to go out and blame it completely on Arthur. No, it wasn't like a, like a sent him away. No. It wasn't like a condemnation. But it did, I will say, it did take him a long time to actually visit him. And Rebecca, their daughter, who she married to? Some some guy. Some guy. Some guy. Just some guy. Some guy. Uh, I, I don't know. Have we talked about him before on this episode? I think we have, briefly. Daniel frickin' Day-Lewis. Unreal. So, so John Proctor in The Crucible. That we all know and love. Is played by Arthur Miller's son-in-law. In the 1996 adaptation. Yeah. So, cool. <laughs> there you go. So crazy. Which which I also I also didn't know. Married into the family. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking and I was like, oh, you know, Arthur Miller, you know, relatives. And it's like Daniel Day-Lewis. And I was like, what? And I saw it. And so this, this is now the second time <laughs> because I didn't know the Marilyn Monroe thing. And I was like, not again. <laughs> like, oh. No. And then, and remember when we were first talking about this, we had that moment where you're like, oh my God. And I said, yeah. I know. I know. And then I think about a half hour later, yeah. you did that. You're like, by the way. And, and I'm like, like, oh, I know. I know. I know. <laughs> it's crazy. I think that was probably one of the two biggest like bomb drops for us. And I'm sure a lot of you out there know this, but I had no idea. Yeah. No don't idea. Know, don't know how I missed that one. Married into the family. It's not what you know. So you know. Their relationship will start on the set of The Crucible in 1996. And they will marry in 1998. It's pretty wild. Yeah. The more you know. But his, uh, his, his work draws him award after award. So his life's work uh, continues to be recognized even while he's alive. Yeah, because remember, he wrote a lot of these plays in his early 30s. Right. Late 20s. So like we said, when we talked about the, the Crucible, those multiple Tony Awards, the revivals, uh, the Pulitzer Prize. But even throughout his life, these awards are still continuously recognized. And one thing that I think is pretty cool is, so just backing up just a bit from the Crucible, is he's here in Salem in... Uh, 1992. 1992. Yeah. When, so when the memorial is done and, and built, he's, he's here. Uh, so because of that. So even uh, every day when we go through the memorial, like Arthur Miller was here. Not only was he here, 
he was on the committee yes. that chose yes. the memorial design. Yeah. Remember, I think we've mentioned before that there was a competition. So I'm assuming, I would think, he would have been at the dedication. I'm 90% sure he was. Did I tell you that he appears in that documentary that I love so dearly from Salem in the yes, 90s? Yes, I think there's actually a picture. Of, can I Google this Oh, yeah, quick? he is. he is the picture. Like the preview picture that you see. I think that's him. So if you've seen the Witch City documentary on Vimeo, Arthur Miller does make an appearance. The narrator, the guy that produced the documentary, goes up to Miller in the midst of this, it was like a party to reveal the decision on the memorial, which one got picked, and they had like a little scale model, and I think it was conducted in the Peabody Essex Museum. The producer, the narrator, goes up to him And it's just chatting with him. I mean, you can only get Arthur Miller for a second. But he presents him with with a a specific souvenir that the Witch Museum used to sell. And Arthur Miller's face is just like, he had no words. He had no words. So the Witch Museum. Positive or negative? Negative. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to take heat for this. Because it's not inaccurate. It's not false. I'm not making this up. Go watch Witch City. So the Witch Museum opened the big one, the one that we all know. The big towers on the front. They opened in early 70s. This documentary takes place in the mid-90s. At that point, they were selling dirt collected from the execution spot, packaged for $5. And on the package, like on the label, it had a hanging tree with people hanging from it. So you could spend $5 at the Salem Witch Museum back in the mid-90s on a bag of dirt from the execution spot. So the, the creator of this documentary presents this to Arthur Miller, and he, he like just shook his head and walked away. I think he was just in shock. You, think you thought that was a good idea? I tell you what, if you want more of that juiciness, go watch that documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. So I think that pretty much wraps up, rounds it out. We focused heavily on his early years and kind of the peak of his career. He doesn't see too much action in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. You know, it's not like he's not working. He publishes some books. He publishes some books with his wife. He does write plays. He never stops writing plays. He never stops writing. There's three more that are released in the 90s. Yeah, he's never Um, not writing. Yeah. But he doesn't have, he's not getting the same reception from the country, from, actually, I was going to say the world, but he even says that his plays during this time were received better overseas than they were here. He just thinks the American public, that's not what they were looking for at that moment in time. But even still, his plays are still being, they're being produced, they're being reproduced, they're being re-released on Broadway. So it's like, he's not coming out with anything new, fine. But, you know, he's still got uh, the Death of a Salesman and um, All My Sons being reproduced, movies. So the movie, Death of a Salesman movie, is I think where you see, I think it came out in 87, and that's just a guess. That is where you see like kind of the tides turn. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he's getting all these Lifetime Achievement Awards left and right, but now people are like, quote unquote, rediscovering his work, which is wild because he's still alive. Imagine how the, (laughs) looking around like, what? 
Like, I wrote this 50 years ago. And now here it is back again. So, and then, of course, 96 is The Crucible. So it's it's the movie. So it's not like he's faded from public view. All these things are still just as prominent. Uh, so it's got to be kind of neat. But, yeah, it's not, he's not coming out with all sorts of new stuff. Yeah. Um, but Arthur Miller, greatest playwright of the 20th century. What a wild life. Wild ride. <laughs> this episode's been a wild ride. The research lie. was wild. I, I'll be honest, had no, I think I said this at the beginning, had no real desire to learn about him. I was never pushed to. I never pushed myself to. I, I stopped at the crucible, and that was it. Yeah, and like I, like I said, I knew. Like, I knew these different pieces, but I hadn't put them all together. I didn't know the whole damn thing. So... There we go. Now you guys have it. You can share uh, in that with us. So that's part one. We hope you enjoyed yourself. So in our next episode, we are going to be talking more in depth about the crucible itself, the story, the, the inaccuracies, the inaccuracies, but also the parallels, the teeth to, to the try. Oh God, John Proctor's <laughs> teeth. T- don't 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 give it away. John Proctor's teeth. <laughs> Um, so it might help if you are a fan of The Crucible but may haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, go. Go watch it. Yeah. Go read it. And next week we are going to, like I said, have a special guest with us, someone who has worked very closely with The Crucible and actually does a tour in town centered on The Crucible. So who better person to talk to? An expert tour guide. But with that, thanks for listening. See you later. Thank you.